Death in Dakota depicts true crime cases and disasters. This particular episode deals with the horrific reality and legacy of reservation boarding schools in the United States. Also mentioned is the AIDS crisis and descriptions of sex. Listener discretion is advised. The stories we tell matter. How we tell them. Who we place first in the narrative. What lines we draw and cross. What reasons we give. How we construct our stories, the beginnings, the middles, and the ends. All matter. They matter as much as the stories we do not tell. As much as the stories we hide in attic spaces or underneath the floorboards of our crawl spaces. What stories we tell what stories we do not tell, and how we tell our stories tells the rest of the world far more than plots or characters, events or histories. It tells about who we are, what we value, what our relationship to our past is, and what the direction of our future might be. It reveals our shame and our pride It perpetuates our culture and solidifies or threatens our power. Stories matter. The year is 2013, maybe 2014. I'm in my high school social studies class when our unit on the AIDS epidemic comes across the syllabus. My teacher begins lecturing about the disease that has killed hundreds of thousands of people, many of them gay or bisexual men, many of whom were men of color. He tells us, in the 21st century, a year or two before same-sex marriage is legalized across the country, that HIV and AIDS began when a deranged homosexual wandered through the jungles of the Congo and had anal sex with a monkey. He then returned to America and had sex with a plethora of men, spurning one of the most devastating global health crises in modern history. It wasn't until this year, 2021, When I was watching the Hulu miniseries, It's a Sin, that I began to question that story. I asked my friends how they believed HIV and AIDS began, and they all said the same thing, sex with a monkey. In actuality, the origin of HIV and AIDS is not entirely clear, but scientists have a pretty good idea. They believe it started in Kinshasa, the capital of the Democratic Republic of the Congo around 1920. Migrants and a robust sex trade that moved through the Congo spread HIV through Congo's impressive infrastructure consistent of roads, railways, and rivers. While the disease did likely make the jump from primates to humans, it likely resulted from hunting. Infected monkeys were killed and eaten. The infected blood of the monkeys mixed with human blood and began the disease in humans. In the 1980s, healthcare professionals noticed rare diseases cropping up in gay men in New York and California and attributed them to some underlying infection, most often named in reference to them being homosexuals. By 1982, doctors noticed the disease was also spreading among hemophiliacs and heroin users, not just gay men. They renamed the disease to its current iteration, AIDS. A year later, in 1983, the CDC released the at-risk group for AIDS, which the public christened the 4-H club, homosexuals, hemophiliacs, heroin addicts, and Haitians. Haitians were brought into the mix similarly to how people of Chinese origin are prejudiced during the COVID-19 pandemic. Although the disease originated in the Congo, many at the time believed HIV and AIDS began in Haiti, the place where the most common strain of HIV likely originated. 
The true story was never told to me in high school because the myth of the man having sex with a monkey was told to my high school history teacher and the high school history teachers of many, if not most, of my friends. The stories we tell matter. The link between bestiality and homosexuality delayed the legalization of gay marriage for many years and the public feared once two men could marry each other, people would start marrying their dogs and cats. It also communicated a very prejudiced view of queer people if their sexual urges are so out of control, so unnatural that they have sex with animals. And it diminishes the already tragic and discarded deaths of hundreds of thousands of people because it implies that they got what they ultimately had coming to them. How we tell our stories matter. In this country, in Canada, in Australia, Britain, and across the world, the stories we tell about the people who are here before us and our role and relationship with them matter. This is Death in Dakota, Season 1, Episode 8, The Bodies We Bury. The history of genocide and exile in the United States is a long and complex one. We won't dive into the full history today, but a few key events are necessary for us to understand the wider context and significance of boarding schools. In 1830, the U.S. Congress passed the Indian Removal Act, which allowed the government to trade Western U.S. land for native ancestral land in the East. As you'll know if you've ever been to the Western United States, the U.S. did not honor those treaties. Instead, the federal government rounded up indigenous tribes and nations and forced them onto reservations. One such nation was the Pawnee. The Pawnee are a people group that historically lived on the land currently called Kansas and Nebraska. Today, they reside in Oklahoma under the name Pawnee Nation of Oklahoma. Prior to colonization, Pawnee farmed crops and hunted buffalo. They lived along rivers and earth lodges oval subterranean structures. Often 30 to 50 people would live in each lodge, typically family members, with 10 to 15 households making up a village. Unlike Western life in which descendants are traced through men, Pawnee ancestry is matrilineal or traced through the mother. Also unlike Western cultures in which women have only recently been given permission to speak, Pawnee women were responsible for trade, resource, and social decisions while men were left to decide hunting, war, and spiritual ones. The Pawnee Nation was frequently at war with many of the surrounding people who were encroaching on their lands, namely the Dakota, Lakota, Cheyenne, and Arapaho Nations. In the mid-1800s, the Pawnee people were reduced from roughly 60,000 to only 4,000 due to the diseases white colonizers brought from their homelands. In 1873, Pawnee were forced to move to, quote, Indian Territory, which later became the state of Oklahoma. Pawnee men were forced to join the U.S. Army as, quote, Indian Scouts to help track and fight their enemy nations who were fighting the U.S. for control over the Great Plains. While the U.S. was struggling for control of the land, they were also fighting to, as Captain Richard Henry Pratt, the founder of the Carlisle Indian School, the nation's first boarding school, which stood in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, said, quote, kill the Indian to save the man. Boarding schools were used throughout the U.S. and Canada to control the indigenous people. 
the Carlisle School served as not only inspiration for the rest of the U.S., but also Canada's boarding schools, so the sins of both countries can be traced back here. In the U.S., this was done as a result of the Civilization Fund Act of 1819. This act allowed the U.S. government to, quote, civilize Native Americans. Schools were first started by Christian missionaries and stood on reservations. Children were allowed to return home to their families after the school day, which missionaries, and later the U.S. government, felt ruined their purpose. They were returned home to speak their language, practice their customs, and live their lives. When attempting a genocide, you have a few options. The first is to kill every last person. The second is to separate children from their parents, thus separating them from their language, traditions, culture, and identity. The United States and Canada took the second approach. This is not some liberal, dramatic reinterpretation of events. As Richard Henry Pratt said himself, Native Americans would be, quote, helped most by complete separation from their Native culture, end quote. In total, about 300 boarding schools were built by governments and churches throughout the 18 and 1900s in North America. The majority of children who attended school were living far away from their families, often forced to leave their families and communities by government officials, almost always despite their protests. The vast majority of schools were designed intentionally to break all ties to their previous ways of life. School officials forbid students from speaking in their native languages and punished them unless they spoke English or, in parts of Canada, French. Despite claims of freedom of religion, Christian conversion was frequently forced on children as well. Genoa students at the Genoa Indian School in Genoa, Nebraska, were forced to become Protestant, while other schools forced Catholicism. Braids and other hairstyles important to cultural life were forcibly cut off in favor of Western-style haircuts. Children were also renamed, shunning their birth names for white ones like John or Dan. Rigid school structures led students to march in military-style formations and complete daily drills. The majority of schools only educated students for half the day. The rest of the day was reserved for work. Students were forced to work in blacksmith shops, kitchens, on the farm, or were outsourced to local white families. The students who worked as servants in white folks' homes were never compensated, although the school received a payment from families in exchange for work. While work, even dangerous tasks, were common for children before the 1938 labor laws and the Fair Labor Standards Act, most white children worked on behalf of their families, while work for Native children was used in isolation of their families as a tool of social control. The schools were often overcrowded, which led to breeding grounds for deadly, contagious diseases like tuberculosis. In 1931, nearly 72% of enrolled Genoa students tested positive for TB. As such, cemeteries were common features on school grounds, children buried in graves far away from their family and communities, often unmarked. When parents or communities inquired into their missing children, they were often given little or no explanation about what happened. First Nations believe between 10 and 50,000 children went missing this way. Fires also claimed lives, as did sexual and physical violence. Some children committed suicide to escape their abuse, 
while others fled into the wilderness, only to succumb to exposure while trying to find their way back home. Some made it back, while others were hunted by whites, looking to rake in the school's bounty for runaways. You may have heard about the hundreds of bodies Canadian authorities recently found throughout their provinces. These were on residential school grounds, confirmation of the trauma residential school survivors have claimed for hundreds of years. According to the Genoa Indian School website, which is a primary source for today's episode, quote, other nations, including Canada and Australia, also removed Indigenous children from their homelands and families to attend distant schools. These nations have issued apologies and made reparations to their Indigenous people for these practices. Canada held a Truth and Reconciliation Commission to help the nation as a whole understand the gravity of the schools. Most Americans know little about the history of the schools in the United States. End quote. After the break, we'll dig into more of the history of one of America's residential schools, the Genoa Indian School in Genoa, Nebraska, as well as the legacy and contemporary presence of the people they tried, unsuccessfully, to wipe from the face of the earth. The Genoa Indian School was the U.S. government's fourth iteration of non-reservation schools, opening on February 20, 1884, with 71 students enrolled. At its end, 600 children would enroll in 30 buildings on a 640-acre campus. The first year, students were between the ages of 7 and 22, although children as young as 5 could be enrolled. The school wasn't exactly habitable yet, and the first cohort of Genoa children were forced to work to make the grounds ready. They cleared weeds and stubble from the land before planting 130 acres of corn. They also planted oats, hay, potatoes, and other vegetables. The children planted 3,500 fruit trees and 3,500 vines and plants. In the morning, the children milked cows and at bedtime fed pigs and cared for the horses and mules. The girls began their rotational training for how to best serve white people in their homes. They learned to cook and serve meals, how to pick and can fruit. Some were trained as nurses while others learned sewing and put their skills to use by sewing the entire wardrobe for students. Genoa, and schools similar to it, stated that students' training was designed to be vocational, allowing them to get better jobs when they graduated. However, the schools weren't fighting the racist attitudes of the white outside world. So when students left, they often were forced to return back to reservations, unable to find jobs suited for non-white people. These students were stuck in a strange in-between world. They were too westernized, too white to feel at home on the reservation, around their family and friends who they shared nothing in common with anymore. But they were still people of color, rejected in a white world. Those who didn't return worked as nurses in factories or as teachers. A 1928 report entitled The Miriam Report suggested that the minimum allocation of funds for each student should be around $700 each year. That's just over $11,000 today. The U.S. Health and Human Services website lists the 2021 poverty guidelines for one person at $12,880. So we really are talking about a minimum level of provisions here. 
Instead, residential schools often only have the budget for every student to have $200 worth of provisions, or just over $3,000 today. While significantly impoverished, underfed, and living in unhealthy conditions, life for Indigenous children on the reservation wasn't significantly better. In fact, many parents were forced into sending their children away to residential schools in order to provide them with food and shelter. I think it's important here to pause and remember two things in light of this, because it's easy to hear that and think that while the residential schools weren't great, they were better than conditions they would otherwise be in. And while that's true on one level, we have to zoom out. The reservations wouldn't be impoverished if entire nation groups weren't forced to the parts of the land that the white people didn't want. If indigenous people were struggling with resources, it would have been from natural causes like drought or a flood or a tornado. Colonization changed the definition of poverty, so I think we should be cautious to celebrate someone responding to a problem they caused. Secondly, we have to go back to the purpose of the residential schools. It, it wasn't to house or to feed or to clothe poor children. It was to force the separation of children from their families so that the native children could be less themselves and more like the white settlers. To kill the Indian, as Pratt said. These schools were tools of genocide that happened to also provide economic relief to the problem colonization had caused. Once parents sent their kids to Genoa, they were severed from contact with their children. Sambi Davis, one of the school's superintendents, made it clear that parents were a bother to their children. He would not release children to their parents after they requested them, because he regarded them as unfit parents. If a child became sick, even deathly, parents were almost always not told. And like I said, deadly diseases spread like wildfires. In addition to tuberculosis, Genoa had near-constant cases of trachoma, an eye disease. According to the World Health Organization, trachoma can be a one-time disease, but when it's endemic, as it was in the Genoa Indian School, frequent reinfection is common. After years of infection, the eyelid becomes so scarred that it turns inwards, causing eyelashes to scratch the eyeball. That can lead to scarred corneas, which can lead to blindness. The least frequent proportion of trachoma in the school happened in 1890, with 36 students, or 24% of those enrolled, infected. Other diseases like chickenpox, scarlet fever, mumps, and measles ripped through the school. In the decade between 1884 and 1894, 23 students died from the disease, or more than two per year. The Miriam Report also criticized boarding schools for using outdated teaching techniques, and noted that students were hungry, sick, and demoralized. The report recommended schools should be dismantled, but the government allowed them to continue. The report's publishing did, however, lead to better food and clothing. In 1911, the school played host to William Jennings Bryan, a former presidential candidate with the Populist Party, who worked to get Democrat Woodrow Wilson elected president. He would go on to serve as Woodrow's Secretary of State, an important post as Europe entered what would be later known as World War I. William came to hear the school's band, renowned throughout Nebraska. The school also ran a livestock breeding program that garnered awards at state fairs and provided finances for the school, upwards of $10,000 per year. 
In the mid-1900s, a superintendent was accused of abusing students. I wasn't able to find more details about that particular individual, but sexual and physical abuse at the hands of school authorities were common and are widely reported among boarding school students and boarding school survivors. The school shut down in 1934, just 87 years ago, in part due to the economic conditions created by the Great Depression. At its largest, Genoa enrolled 600 students from 10 states and 20 tribes. In the 1960s and 1970s, activists fought for the last of the boarding schools to be shut down, and in 1975, just 46 years ago, their wish was granted when Congress passed the Indian Self-Determination and Education Assistance Act, which allowed tribes to assume responsibility for federally run programs. However, the U.S. government continues to operate four boarding schools on reservations in Oklahoma, California, Oregon, and South Dakota. Hundreds of thousands of children, the total number of which will likely be never known, were ripped apart from their families over the course of 150 years of residential schools in America. Alumni and their descendants continue to host reunions in Nebraska to tour the school, gather with their community, and reflect on the experiences they endured. The school remains as only one building, the Manual Training Building, which has undergone renovations to bring it into the century. It serves as the Genoa U.S. Indian School Museum and is a national historical site. Secretary Deb Holland is the current U.S. Secretary of the Interior, the department that, according to its website, quote, protects and manages the nation's natural resources and cultural heritage, provides scientific and other information about those resources, and honors its trust, responsibilities, or special commitments to American Indians, Alaska Natives, and affiliated island communities. The Department of the Interior plays a central role in how the United States stewards its public lands, increases environmental protections, pursues environmental justice, and honors our nation-to-nation -nation relationship with tribes." End quote. Secretary Holland, a member of the Pueblo of Laguna, is the first Native American to ever serve in a president's cabinet. On June 22, 2021, she announced that the U.S. would search federal boarding school grounds for burial sites, just as Canada is doing now. In a press conference, she said, quote, I know that this process will be long and difficult. I know that this process will be painful. It won't undo the heartbreak and loss that so many of us feel. But only by acknowledging the past can we work toward a future that we're all proud to embrace. End quote. The new initiative is titled the Federal Indian Boarding School Initiative, which will search facilities and sites where students may have been buried. It will identify affiliations of enrolled and deceased students, as well as mine records from the 150-year history of U.S. residential schools. Christine McCleave, who serves as the chief executive of the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition, remarked on the project saying, quote, the thing that is the open wound for our communities right now is the fact that our children were taken and they're lost and we don't know where they went and we don't know what happened to them. We don't know their final resting place, end quote. The president and vice president of the Navajo Nation, Jonathan Nez and Myron Lizer, respectively said, quote, This troubling history deserves more attention to raise awareness and to educate others about the atrocities that our people experienced so that they can better understand our society today and work together to heal and move forward, end quote.
The interior hopes to work with tribal leaders to protect burial sites and utilize the information it gathers. Indigenous tribes and nations continue to reclaim their cultural heritage today through language revitalization and cultural education programs. The Pawnee Nation continues to be active in Oklahoma with over 3,000 enrolled members. You can learn more about the Pawnee Nation today by visiting PawneeNation.org. If you are currently in the U.S. and interested in learning who lived on your land prior to you, you can text your city and state or your zip code to 907-312-5085 and they'll send you the names of the nations formerly or currently living on or around your land, as well as a link to learn more and support the project. That number again is 907-312-5085. I'm sure text or data rates may apply. You can also go to the website https colon slash slash native-land.ca to explore an interactive map of the Americas, Australia, and portions of Scandinavia and Africa to see what nations and people have inhabited land throughout history. They also have resources and are adding more each month that help educate about those people's languages, culture, and history. They also have a Patreon if you're interested in partnering with them financially. I currently subscribe to their Acknowledged tier, which is just $5 a month, affordable even for me as a graduate student. They have a bunch of other tiers if you can do more. I will put this information in the show notes so you can explore to your heart's content. This has been Death in Dakota, Season 1, Episode 8, The Bodies We Bury. Sources for today's episode include the Genoa Indian School website, Wikipedia pages for misconceptions about HIV AIDS, the Pawnee people, and William Jennings Brown. I also used avert.org's History of HIV AIDS article, two articles in the New York Times, the first of which was called Canada's Grim Legacy of Cultural Erasure in Poignant School Photos, written by Ian Austin, and the second which was called U.S. to Search Former Native American Schools for Children's Remains written by Christine Hauser and Isabella Goulon Paz. I used several government websites, including the Department of Interior's About page and their information on Deb Holland, as well as the Department of Labor's article on child labor, the Health and Human Services Poverty Guidelines for 2021, and the WHO's article on trachoma. Finally, I used the History Nebraska article, written by an unknown author titled Flashback Friday, the Tragedies and Successes of the Genoa Indian School. The Genoa Indian School article posted on Native American Netroots, written by an unknown author, and A Century of Trauma at U.S. Boarding Schools for Native American Children, by Aaron Blakemore for National Geographic. Thanks for listening, and remember, we all have to die. Just try not to die in Dakota.